I want to call your attention to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, John chapter 12, from which we read earlier, and we'll just read one verse uh, here and now, and that is verse 24, John chapter 12, verse 24. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. This is a one-verse parable spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ. It is one of the shortest and simplest, but one from which we ought to learn much. There is a context, of course, to this verse. These words were spoken during the last week of our Lord's public ministry. After the triumphal entry into Jerusalem that we read of beginning back in verse 12 of this chapter. There was something of a building up of interest, expectation, curiosity among the multitudes that gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. There was excitement in the air. There seems to have been some heightened expectation that something big is going to happen here this year at this Passover feast. There were some Gentiles who were present, probably proselytes who had, to some measure, embraced the the Jewish nation and faith. We read there in verse 20, there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, one of the twelve, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, Perhaps they thought they could uh, more easily approach a Galilean than uh, anyone from Judea. And desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. We want to meet him. We are determined to have some time with him. They wanted to meet this well-known prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And we might make some connection with uh, verse 19 where the Pharisees so angry about the multitudes welcoming Christ into the city of Jerusalem in that triumphant entry. They they lamented the whole world has gone after him. All of their efforts to, to stop him seem to be in vain. And indeed, not just the Jewish world, but even Greeks, non-Jewish people had gone after him and were coming perhaps even for the very purpose of seeing 
him. It says they came to worship at the feast, also verse 20. So they want to see Jesus. Perhaps these Gentiles, like others there in Jerusalem, were expecting Jesus to make a national reset. I think that's a term that we could safely use in this context. The miracle working teacher would come and be coronated as king and turn everything around nationally and politically for them. Whatever their reason for seeking Jesus, his word to them was certainly not what they expected. And again, the picture we get here is that these these Greeks come, they approach Philip with this with this request to you know, would you please introduce us to Jesus? Philip comes to Andrew, and and the people are following him, and then and he makes the request known to Andrew, and so then Andrew and Philip and the Greeks in tow all come to Jesus, and listen to what Jesus says. Verse 23, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and so on. Instead of speaking to them, of a new regime and an independence movement against Caesar, he speaks of his death, of losing his life. He goes on in verse 27 and speaks of the trouble of his own soul. Our Lord oftentimes gave surprising answers to questions and to requests. Our natural way of thinking is so different from his. But he did say there in verse 23, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. We know that He had spoken many times previously about an hour. And he would say, my hour has not yet come. Now he says, the hour is come. The hour is here. What hour is he talking about? Well, the hour, the time of his death. His death was very close now, just a few days away. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Well, we know that glory followed his death, especially in his resurrection from the dead and his his ascension into heavenly glory and his being seated at the right hand of the Father. He suffered and then entered into his glory, as he says in Luke 24. But surely all who are believers in Christ see something glorious. 
and we see him glorified in his actual death. In his hours of suffering and death on the cross, we see glory in that. It's what the Apostle Paul was referring to when he says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's something glorious in the cross itself. Again, we usually think of glory as what followed the cross in his glorious resurrection. And I don't mean to take anything away from that. But we see something glorious in his death itself. And we love to think about it and read about it and talk about it. In his death, we see our redemption. We see him as our substitute dying in our place. In his death, we see his perfect obedience to all of the Father's will, suffering the penalty that the law requires for our salvation. We see his priestly work being carried out and fulfilled there on the cross. We see the full atonement that he accomplished Reconciling God and sinners. All of which is the prelude to his resurrection glory. Resurrection from the dead. Well, he says the hour is come. This hour is come. And then he gives this parable. And let's just briefly look at the parable itself. And then we'll look at the explanation of it. He speaks of a grain of wheat. One single corn or grain is in view here. And so what can be done with this little grain? Well, there are really two options. One is you can save it. You can hang on to it, preserve it, and really do nothing with it. And if you do that, what do you have? You have one solitary grain, and that's all. It abides alone, as he says here. It remains just one by itself. There's no increase. There's no profitableness about it. The other option is you may take that little grain of wheat and plant it. That's what he means by falling into the ground. And in that case, you lose the grain. You'll never see it again. But a most amazing result comes. You put it in the ground. It disappears. It's gone. It cannot be retrieved. But the fruit is, the result is, a plant 
with many grains. This is the way that God made things to work in the beginning. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 1. There's the grain that has life in itself. It reproduces itself. But for this single grain to reproduce, it must be sacrificed. It must die. In order for the life that is within it to germinate. And I'm not an expert on the details here. But if I understand it correctly, the decaying shell of that grain of wheat becomes sort of like the fertilizer to nourish the germinating, developing kernel. And that life that is in itself. And so... What the Lord says to us here in this parable is what we call counterintuitive. It goes against the way we would think or what we would expect. It goes against our intuition. The only way to multiply one seed is not to hoard it, but it's to give it up. It's to sacrifice it. The one who clutches at the seed to save it will forfeit any duplication or any multiplication of it. There will be no increase of it. It will just be a fruitless guarding and hoarding of the seed. So this is our Lord's parable. Of course, he was interested in more than just horticulture. And he gives the explanation in verses 25 and following. But before we look at that, let me point out one more thing from verse 24. He begins this whole little parable with these weighty words, Verily, verily, or truly, truly. I say unto you, he's saying something profound here, something that he does not want us to miss, something that we need to understand and consider. And so we find that in the explanation. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. In case we hadn't figured out the meaning of the parable, he he supplies the meaning here. He says, if you grasp your little grain of life, you will lose it in the end. But if you give up your little grain of life and 
as it were, plant it and, and sacrifice it and, and give it up and lose it. Yes, it really becomes an investment and you will gain much more in the end. Again, so counterintuitive to us. Let me show, first of all, how that this is true concerning the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That this parable he gives is a description of his own death and the glorious fruits of his death. He fell into the ground. We might say, like a corn of wheat, he fell into the ground when he as the Son of God came to this earth as the Son of Man and assumed a human body and spirit, humbled himself, emptied himself, came down to our level as a man, and in his incarnate humanity, he lived, he labored, He ate and slept and talked and traveled and ministered and taught and wrought many miracles. Here's the grain of wheat upon the ground. And then he died. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die. Consider his death. Consider his giving up of his life. Laying down his life. Suffering the shame and the pain in the death by crucifixion. And suffering this unspeakable, unfathomable, Separation from the Father's comfort and presence in that death. Forsaken, abandoned, left alone. The very thought of it, the very anticipation of it brought trouble to his soul, brought agitation to his soul. As he says there in verse 27, now is my soul troubled. Right here in John 12, on this day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we see a foretaste, or our Lord experienced a foretaste of Gethsemane, where his soul was greatly troubled. But consider also, how that he brought forth much fruit in his death. Just as the seed that is planted loses its life only to spring up in in multiplicity of life, consider how that he rose from the dead and entered into a glorious life. And how that in his resurrection he brought with him All for whom he died and makes us to be raised up in new life in him.
He brings forth with Him from the grave all who were chosen by the Father and given to the Son. Oh, what a wonderful multiplication by His sacrifice of Himself. He brought forth much fruit. A great innumerable multitude of redeemed ones. And so we see how this parable applies to our Savior Himself. He came into this world and died. He humbled Himself to our level so that He might exalt us to His level. As Calvin put it, the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. In the words of Hebrews chapter 2, in His death and resurrection from the dead, He brought many sons unto glory. Thank God that the Son of God did not abide alone. That He did not seek, and I don't know how else to say it, to save His own life, but that He came and willingly laid it down so that we might have life. And all who believe in Him are the fruits of His sacrifice. But let us consider also how this parable is true of all who are believers in Christ, disciples of His. Mr. Spurgeon preached a message on this text, and he entitled it, Christ's Death and Yours. Because you can't help but see not only Christ's death in this parable, but if you're a believer, you see your own self here also. Our Lord stated this principle in one way or another again and again. And he says it this way here in verse 26, if any man serve me, let him follow me. Follow me. You must take up your cross and follow me. Let me just remind you of a couple of places in his public ministry where he said this. <clears throat> Both of these are from the Gospel of Matthew, different scenes. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. And what does he mean by taking his cross? Well, the, the cross was an emblem of death. It was a, an emblem of suffering and, and shame and death. It's the death that he would die. It wasn't a, a pretty ornament. It was a rough, rugged, wooden instrument of death. 
And he says, follow me. I'm headed to the cross. I have a cross on which to die. And if you believe in me, he says, you must carry a cross. You must identify with me. You must come to death with me. He goes on to say exactly what he says in our text here in or similar words. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Another occasion, on another occasion, he said the same thing. Then said Jesus to his disciples, if any man will come after me, what? Let him prepare to be uh, a governor in my earthly kingdom and prepare for fame and wealth and glory and honor and a great throne? Not at all. He says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Our Lord sets the example of self-denial. And he says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to do what I do. And that is deny yourself. If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up the cross. And he says it again here. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You say, it sounds like the Lord is saying that winning is losing. And losing is winning. And in a sense, that's exactly what he's saying. Living, that is living for this world, is dying. But dying to this world is living. Back in John chapter 12 here, he says, "He, verse 25, that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Dying here is synonymous with repentance and faith and following Christ. The hatred here in verse 25 is comparative, obviously. It is comparing this life to the life hereafter, life eternal. Or to put it another way, We can say it this way. Salvation is free. It is purchased by Christ alone. It is his free gift to all who believe in him. However, all who believe in him become his disciples, his followers. And as his disciple... You must follow him in life and death and resurrection. 
Paul states this to Timothy in these words, if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. He's talking here about being in a saving union or connection with Christ. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. And Paul is saying nothing there that our Lord himself did not say. For example, in Luke chapter 14, when he spoke of counting the cost. Though the cost of salvation is paid by Christ, the the redemptive cost, the atoning cost is paid by Christ in full. There is an obedient gratitude cost that he speaks of in this passage. Let me just read it and let these words sink deep into your soul. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down at first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. And here's the point. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. What does it cost? To be a Christian. Everything. If you clutch at your earthly life. And are determined to live for yourself. And live for worldly pleasures. And sinful delights. What will happen to you? You'll eventually die. Death has a 100% success rate. And then you will wake up in the lake of fire forever. In the words of our Lord's parable here, you will abide alone forever and ever. No friends, no comfort, no companions, especially no grace of God. You will abide alone in torment. And yet, though this is true, the message of the world today is live for the moment. Live now. 
Enjoy all of your sinful lusts while you can. Now is your opportunity. Don't let it pass by. And of course, we expect to hear that from the world, don't we? But what is such a grief to us is that this is the same message that false Christianity puts forth in our day. Live your best life now. To be a Christian won't cost you anything. The concept of bearing a cross, being inconvenienced, suffering, self-denying is unheard in false Christianity today. And this is where the message of the world and the message of a false gospel coincide. Neither one has any focus on or interest in the life to come, the hereafter. It's all about here and now. We have many examples in the scripture to avoid this. One of them that is most striking and memorable is a woman, we don't even know her name, but we know the name of her husband. His name was Lot. And the Lord Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. And as she was with her husband and two daughters leaving the city of Sodom, while the fire and brimstone fell from heaven upon them for their sin and wickedness, she looked back. And whatever was involved in that look, whether it's just a longing look or whether perhaps she actually turned back to go back and retrieve some more of her goods that she just couldn't give up and couldn't live without, the cost was far greater than it was worth. She perished in the destruction and became a pile of salt and brimstone herself. Reminds me of the story of a man who was found after a fire in a district in, in the country of Brazil where there were jewelers and jewelry businesses all together in this, this place. And they found this man with his arms lined with wristwatches. He, he had his golden opportunity. The place is on fire. Everybody's running out. Man, I can get all the watches I ever wanted. He got the watches. And lost his soul in the process. Matthew Henry says, many a man hugs himself to death. That's what our Lord is talking about here. If you love your life, you'll lose it. But listen, if you come to Christ and surrender to him, 
Yes, it will cost you. Christ never hides that fact. He doesn't bait you in and then the awful reality is revealed. No, he tells you right up front, you'll die. You'll die to yourself. You'll die to your pride. You'll die to all that pleases your sinful flesh. You'll die to this world. In fact, they won't want anything to do with you. You will die to your selfish ambitions and pursuits. Yes, it's a painful death. Giving up all that your sinful nature loves is a difficult and traumatic experience. But it is necessary if you are to enter into spiritual life. If you are to enjoy life with God, to be alive to holiness, righteousness, and heaven itself. If you want to have life that is worth having, then you have to give up this life of sin. But I challenge you to ask anyone who has died to self and sin in this world, and they will tell you that the life that they have entered into, the life that they have gained, is so satisfying and fulfilling. They would die a thousand deaths if necessary to enter into this life. Our Lord called it life abundant. In John chapter 10, that is beyond measure. Life that's multiplied, it, it fits very neatly with his parable here. Life that is, is, is much more than you began with, much more than you gave up and sacrificed. Thomas Adams, who died in 1652, said this, to part with what we cannot keep that we may get what we cannot lose is a good bargain. And every believer would testify to the same. Abraham left everything, left the comforts and and wealth and friends and familiar things in Ur of Chaldees and goes to wander in the desert Uh, for the rest of his life. And it was the best exchange he could have ever made. And then, you know, there came the point where he and Lot have to part ways. They've got too many uh, sheep and herds, and Lot chooses what looks like the best for here and now. Lot chooses to live his best life now. Abraham says, I'll take the leftovers and you know the end of that story I've just told you who ended up living life to the fullest it was Abraham of course take the uh, example of Paul his own testimony there in Philippians 3 
He said, all these assets that I had as a religious Jew and a a leader of the Pharisees and the top of the class and so on, he said, I gave it all up. All these assets I came to see were nothing but liabilities to be discarded so that I might gain something far better, which is Christ himself, his salvation. Dying to self and sin is a sacrifice worth the making, my friend. It's in your own soul's best interest. And it's even in the best interest of other souls. It's it's in the best interest of your children and those around you. We could give illustrations of that, but I will hasten on here. We need to draw to a close. Let's look at, uh, at verse 28. after our Lord says in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. This was Christ's great and ultimate concern, the glory of the heavenly Father, the honor of his worthy name. It's as if he says, Father, if you're glorified by my suffering and death, then let me die. And that is the perspective that every disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ must also have. If God is glorified in my death, whether it's death to sin and self and and selfish pursuits, or even physical death, then let me die, because he will raise me up. He will raise me up in new life. It's like being born all over again, to use another figure of speech. And he will certainly raise me up at the last day in in glory to be with him in heaven forever. And so I'll just close with this question. Do you want to live? Do you want to really live? Do you want to live to the fullest? And live toward God? And live forever with Christ and with all who are redeemed by his blood? If you want to live, then come and die. Die with Christ. Lay down on the cross and die with Him. And be raised up to a better life and a better world. Be raised up with Christ in new life. Believe on Him and be saved.